giant robot smashing into other giant robots. This is the Giant Robots Smashing Into Other Giant Robots podcast, where we explore the design, development, and business of great products. I'm your host, Chad Pytel, and with me today is Sam Zimmerman, CEO and co-founder of Sagewell Financial. Sam, thanks for joining me. Thanks so much for having me, Chad. I've been following along with Sagewell Financial for a little while now, given our cross histories and the fact that we've worked uh, with a few companies that you've worked at in the past. So I'm aware of what Sagewell Financial is, but I'm not sure that all of our audience is. So I think a good place to start would be by giving folks a little bit of an intro into what Sagewell Financial is, and then we'll touch on the founding story and go from there. Awesome. Yeah. So you know, in a sentence, Sagewell is building the digital banking that our parents deserve. To expand on that even more, America's retirees are a really interesting and important and powerful demo in American culture writ large. You know, there's 56 million Americans on a fixed income. And last year in venture capital, nearly $100 billion went to fund financial technology companies rewriting all of finance. Mm -hmm. And of that 100 billion, or a little under, less than uh, a fraction of a percent went to America's seniors. And so we are trying to build banking from the ground up for the needs of folks who are living on a fixed income, who are in their golden years and aren't thinking about, you know, that new job or making new money. We're building a bank for folks who are trying to retire and live off their savings and, and their income. In, as intelligently uh, and as as well as possible, um, and that looks really different than the you know the bank that a, a millennial or a Gen Z user might have. So that's really interesting. Right or wrong? What are the reasons that this historically hasn't been a target demographic for investment? So the prevailing assumption among venture capitalists is that was uh, we're we're changing that and hopefully changing that quite quickly was that retirees aren't open to changing. Beyond that, they're also not technically sophisticated. These folks don't know how to use a phone or aren't open to a bank that you know, might not have any physical branch. They are set in their ways. You know, they're you know, not going to you know, move branch or they're barely going to you know, watch a new TV show. A lot of folks who are trying to talk, uh, imagining a, a, a grandma or a grandpa it was really what the venture capitalists are, are drawing on often when they're thinking about why, you know, a senior wouldn't expect to have a bank at, with all the, the new features that uh, the millennial might. Well, that one is certainly changing, especially as the venture capitalists get older themselves. They probably realize that that's an outdated notion in terms of the the technical aptitude or familiarity of that audience, right? Exactly. And it, there's a, it's a fascinating moment there's 10,000 boomers who turn 65 each day in America, about 4 million folks each year. And those folks were about 40, you know, whenever the dot-com boom passed. They've been using email, they have Etsy and PayPal. And importantly, you know, a moment, you know, why we're building this company now is that COVID changed uh, seniors' digital lives more than anyone else. AARP reports how 70% of all American retirees know how to use Zoom and video conferencing software nowadays. You know, across the stack of digital goods and services, seniors were actually the group that was, you know, most um, moved online. And so 
from where we sit as entrepreneurs, we saw a massive market, uh, an exogenous effect, creating a disproportionate opportunity. And so we began designing and iterating on and understanding our user to build a product that met those needs um, with this massive and growing market. Banking is a highly regulated, complex space. And you know, I imagine from day one, you're looking at that and saying, well, we might want to do everything eventually, but doing everything is going to be difficult. So what was the process you and your co-founder and, and the team around you used to decide like what the first product should be and what were you going to bring to market? Our, our founding team spent uh, almost nine months in user interviews and user research across what one director of finance at Capital One called geriatric finance. We talked to hundreds of folks and a lot of our assumptions about what the simplest or most low trust or quickest to use service might be were actually like totally turned on their head in a really interesting way. Another reason why venture capitalists aren't so confident you can reach this demo is a couple of companies have come before us and a lot of them followed in financial technology a mint-like model uh, where you know you log in, you share your various bank credentials, they pull your you know, credit card transactions and bank transactions. And one of the really surprising things in our hours of user interviews was that that model was really unpalatable to this demo. They actually thought it was a lot higher trust to share bank credentials than it was to actually open an account. And so we began thinking, you know, what's the highest engagement, most common, accessible feature that our demo is familiar with, uh, and that's already broadly online. And let's start there. And that, that, that came about over a call we had. The original insight came with a, a woman, she was from Pennsylvania, and we were talking, we built this kind of mint.com type prototype to try to uh, help her. Um, imagine banking for for her needs without you know this high trust checking account, and she was like, oh, she was aghast that we were even considering you know asking for bank credentials. And honest, we heard that, and then we so were like, all right, that no no worries, no need to do this product demo. And then she was like, but I really love Chime, and I really love Chime's uh, checking account. And we were like, wait, you have a digital bank account? Um, and she's like, yeah, I love Chime. And it was this moment where thinking about our user, what trust meant to them, you know, what was familiar to them and what, you know, being online meant to them was kind of, it opened the floodgates and helped us really understand this user and what that, that first product needed to be. And so our initial product is a checking account. It's got a variety of senior specific features around and enabling it. And it's built incredibly uh, accessibly to be available to folks who use technology in all sorts of ways. But uh, we started with the basics because that's what our, our members are used, uh, most familiar to and most expect. So you say, right, you know, in the fine print on the website that Sagewell is a financial technology company and not a bank and your banking services are provided by a partner. What was involved in sort of actually bringing that online, finding the right partner implementing the features. What did that look like? Yeah, it is an incredible time to be kind of building any sort of banking in America around the world. So that point earlier, $100 billion was pumped into financial technology companies. And so as a result, 
there are so many companies and so much innovation happening in banking and fintech broadly. And so kind of starting and figuring out what vendor to work with was actually one of the, you know, what our strategy from a banking and regulatory perspective was, and in turn, what what vendors and in-house technology we needed to build was one of the hardest initial challenges uh, that I've ever had to face in, in building a company. It is still, despite what many kind of, you know, you'll see a lot of ads, you know, have a card online in minutes. It is still in today's day and age quite an achievement to build banking and, and get it online and servicing your customers in a scalable and, and sustainable way. And so we spent a lot of time early on in the in the architecture and vendor selection process and product strategy process, thinking about what vendors to go with, what we were going to build in house, and before ultimately breaking ground about three months after uh, after we get begin, you know, we set the the, the product itself, which was going to be a checking account for retirees. What were the factors that went into choosing the partner that you ultimately chose? You know, beyond kind of your standard enterprise vendor selection. So, you know, wanted to make sure that it was secure and wanted kind of a, a, a specific set of features. In our space, there's about six different, you know, companies that provide what's called banking as a service technology. And so that was one of our one of our key vendors is the the technology company that works with the bank to allow us to, you know, open checking accounts, you know, fund accounts. And most of those companies have been around for only a few years. And so their products themselves are hardening and being built. And about $200 million, I would say, has been invested in those companies last year. And so we wanted one that was well capitalized. We wanted one that had not had any uh, IT security issues. We wanted the underlying bank to be aligned in our mission. Retirees have a variety of you know specific financial needs. A lot of our product development involves working very closely with the bank. And so we needed to make sure that the bank itself that they worked with was on board. And lastly, we, we talked to other, other customers. Um, and that was ultimately the most valuable thing in our experience. And you know, not just the customers that they refer you to, but the, you know, the customers who, who have left for one reason or another. Those were the major factors that we chose in our banking as a service provider. And then beyond that, you know, that's one piece of the puzzle. We, in our you know, bank tech stack, we're looking at around 15 different partners mm-hmm. uh, across all parts of banking. And that's the largest and most important one. And those are the criteria we used to select. I often say when I'm looking at building a product or service and, and we look at those integration points with external vendors is one of the riskiest parts of building a product because you're not in control of it. So from a business perspective, it's risky, but also from a technology perspective, that's where <laughs> estimates can get out of whack and things can work like not like you're expecting or like the documentation said or um, or just surprises crop up along the way, or when something goes down, um, your product is broken. And your entire product basically is built on those vendor relationships. So how do you minimize that risk and work in that environment to make a business that works and a product that works? <laughs> the, I suppose the answer is with a lot of prudence, <laughs> thoughtfulness, and care um, at a high level. I was actually just talking with a, a CTO friend of mine just talking about how, you know, in a lot of startups, one of the skills that I most ask of engineers and, and engineering leaders early on is is vendor selection and how I hadn't seen an interview process that really 
um, helped get at that. You know, it's a, a core part of a lot of technologists' job, and particularly a lot of you know engineering folks' job. The, you know, the API docs looked good, but did you test the? You know, did you test it or evaluate it? Was there a a tool you could have a third party tool you could have used instead of building in house? Those are the sort of questions that a lot of times early stage startups are answering all the time. And I had yet to see an interview that kind of got at that. So it's a, it's a really shrewd point And one that I, I hope that as technologists and particularly kind of early stage startups become more about really going deep in one area and then leveraging third parties elsewhere. I, I hope that we, we start kind of actually hiring and, and, and developing criteria to do that, you know, with the people that we assemble. I think the first part, what I would say is we described a little bit about the risks. Uh, we went through a, a risk mitigation exercise, which is a, it smells very enterprisey. You know, it's kind of uh, the sort of thing that you would expect kind of to exist in some sort of massive waterfall with a Jira board mainframe computer, but just listing kind of like, here's this integration, you know, if this failure to happen, you know, what would happen? What would we do? If the API went down, you know, what control do we have or how could we, you know, minimize the impact on our customers? That exercise across some of our biggest integrations, you know, then helped us select uh, and, you know, take on the risks we wanted and, the, and, the, and, and avoid the ones we couldn't. So he's, it was a lot of, you know, conversation about the, the sorts of failures we could put up with and how we could put with them and the sorts of failures we couldn't. And then really testing for the ones we couldn't to make sure that we were making as good a choice as possible. Despite that thoughtful answer, it was the best we could do. I would say that, you know, particularly in a face a space that's as fast moving as banking as a service, I would say that, you know, a lot of it is still that soft skill, that relational conversations with other teams and folks. And whether you trust the, the team that you're trusting to execute uh, and build what they said they're going to build. And that like hiring is skill, but also a good bit of luck as well. Mm-hmm. So correct me if I'm wrong, but up until Sagewell, where you're CEO, you had been CTO of the other companies that you founded and and worked at. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. So what has the change to being CEO instead of CTO been like for you personally? And was that choice clear from the beginning with Sagewell? So far, it's been incredibly rewarding. I would say in between startups, I actually worked and volunteered at an organization called PathCheck. And while my title was CTO, you know, the scope of that included, you know, partnerships, vendor negotiations, CISO exercises, product. It was a pretty expansive CTO sort of role. And I found myself really energized by the breadth and the ability to work with even more really talented, thoughtful experts in their own domain and empower them to do more. And so I, I knew in my next role, I wanted more of that breadth. There's an essay that classifies folks as foxes who can do a little bit of everything or hedgehogs who can do one thing really well. And I'm a super fox. I love doing <laughs> lots of things. <laughs> and so CEO to me is just like an opportunity to, uh, it's maximizing breadth um, and maximizing difference of experience. And I kind of transitioned, I would say, from a normal CTO role to kind of a, a beefy CTO role to making CEO kind of a, a pretty natural step from there. Mm-hmm. And your co-founder is named Jeff Wright, and he's the COO. How did you meet him and get started with Sagewell? Yeah, Jeff and I, it's, a, it's, it's been wonderful. He, 
I was trying to figure out, you know, how I was going to get engaged uh, in pandemic work in April of 2020, uh, after leaving my last startup, uh, while it was being sold to Capital One. And I was talking with a a founder friend of mine, a a guy named Ty Harris, uh, who is the CEO of an insure tech company called Openly, and he was previously the CPO at Liberty Mutual. And Ty and I had a couple lunches and conversations, and I uh, was talking to him about kind of how it is getting involved in, in COVID stuff and kind of and how is ultimately my species was an entrepreneur and I was going to be building something again. And, you know, he connected me with, with Jeff and Jeff and I touched base quickly in April and like a little bit like a, you know, frog in the pot sort of situation where it started like, yeah, let's, maybe we could build a company to go, let's kind of riff on some ideas and, and see what's, what's out there. And it was a, a really, really natural progression from August to, you know, a couple evenings, maybe a, a Saturday call or two to, you know, most evenings and, and definitely a Saturday to, oh man, you know, this, when should we transition? You were both working full-time on other things at the time, right? You were working with PathCheck. Yep, exactly. And so he was he was at uh, the CPO at a, a company called Plymouth Rock, mm-hmm. and I was working at PathCheck. And not to go into PathCheck stories too much, but PathCheck was largely deploying a, a research technology, the Google and Apple Exposure Notification Protocol. And uh, that work, it became clear that most of the states that were going to do anything were, were already going to do it. And so it was natural to start thinking about what was next in, in August and September. And so that was, as, as my species does, that then became the, the night and weekend project mm-hmm. to figure out what's next. So you mentioned that this is a space that you know is typically not strongly funded so was that a challenge for you as you were getting started? How did you get that initial, you know, wh- where did your initial funding come from? And I know you recently raised, at least it was announced, the $5.3 million in January. So what was the transition from those early days? Where did the funding come from to ultimately getting the investment in this last round? You know, Jeff and I worked in the in the fall of 2020, met our CTO, uh, Chris Toomey, in November, actually, from connection through a friend. Early on, we were a team with a demo. We really knew that we cared about seniors and our backgrounds in financial services. We were trying to do, think of uh, a new product for seniors, and so uh, a financial product for seniors. And so that was in around January. We sharpened our pencils on the user user research side of things and, and the product side of things. And once we kind of had a lot clearer sense of, you know, the product direction we wanted to take, ultimately kind of building banking for retirees, we began the fundraising process. So were you essentially self-funding at that point? Yep. So we were self-funding from January-ish mm-hmm. till May. I find that skin in the game to be, I wish I was the sort of founder who could kind of think about flawless ideas without, you know, a little pressure. But in my experience, it's actually been one where I'm like, unless I kind of jump in, unless I kind of really have uh, a little bit of pressure, my ideas aren't often as refined as I'd like. And so it was Jeff joined it full time in February. And then we fundraised through April and closing a, a 1 million pre-seed, which is pretty common in fintech. Mm-hmm. Most financial technology companies you know, the banks won't talk to you until you have at least a million dollars in funding. And so we raised the money we needed from our, and who did the money come from? It came from uh, Point Judith Capital, who actually had uh, invested in Ty, the guy who connected us his company openly. 
So we had an initial conversation with David, who's been absolutely wonderful uh, at Point Judith Capital. And also, you know, Jeff and I knew that innovating for a, a vulnerable population, ultimately retirees, meant that we wanted to have folks from the beginning who who really represented this seniority and seriousness with which we are taking our work. Um, and so the the second investor was, is, was who took, in between the two of them, they took most of that million, uh, was Crossbeam and Raj Date at Crossbeam, who's the uh, former deputy director of the U.S. Consumer Protection Bureau. We really wanted folks around the table who knew what innovation looked like and, and fintech innovation like David as well as folks who understood the, the world of government and finance, like like someone like Raj, to innovate thoughtfully uh, with this demo. Was it difficult to get the, those funding rounds? The first one, uh, yeah. The, the first one was uh, about two months. I think I thought it would have taken about a month. Mm-hmm. The second one, the market is pretty crazy right now. And I would say between my first company and my second, it used to be that you'd set aside six months to fundraise. And so I'd kind of prepared for a six month fundraise, started kind of in early October, two weeks in. Uh, and they were like, wow, you've already been in the market for two weeks. And I was like, what? <laughs> this is like, well, I was I was totally off base in terms of kind of what was the new normal. Ultimately, that round came together in about a month and a half as well. And so we, we had a, a, a lot of interest. We were actually it kind of the second round that 5.3 million kind of went from not a ton of interest to tons of interest and lots of folks around the table and having to kind of push folks out or tamp folks down pretty quickly. The first round, I would say, you know, for a pre-seed, you know, one to two months, given that the idea was hardening, sounds about right. The second one, about one to two months, but was a little, a lot of people would get excited by the market. They get excited by the team. And then they'd say, you can't get a senior to, to open up a, a, a bank account. And then they'd, they'd come back. And then we found one believer alongside David and, and Raj, who've been with us. And once we got the folks at 25 Madison and, and Merrill, especially, the rest of the round came together really quickly. I wanted to tell you all about something I've been working on quietly for the past year or so, and that's Agency U. Agency U is a membership-based program where I work one-on-one with a small group of agency founders and leaders toward their business goals. We do one-on-one coaching sessions and also monthly group meetings. We start with goal setting, advice, and problem solving based on my experiences over the last 18 years of running ThoughtBot. As we progress as a group, we all get to know each other more, and many of the agency you members are now working on client projects together and even referring work to each other. Whether you're struggling to grow an agency, taking it to the next level and having growing pains, or a solo founder who just needs someone to talk to, in my 18 years of leading and growing ThoughtBot, I've seen and learned from a lot of different situations, and I'd be happy to work with you. Learn more and sign up today at thoughtbot.com slash agency U. That's A-G-E-N-C-Y, the letter U. Given that you were able to put together a round quickly, how do you decide ultimately not to take even more money? Like what are what are the factors that, that go into deciding how much you're trying to fundraise and how big the round is going to be? And is there pressure? as you're doing that to maybe go even bigger? Yeah, there's a, there was, I mean, we had, I would say maybe seven and a half million dollars interested. And even since we've closed, we've had multiple firms 
who are interested in you know a new round of capital. It's the the market is really really quite founder friendly right now. I think ultimately for any uh, any founder, what you're trying to do is create as much uh, value with as little capital as possible. I mean that's ultimately the game that you're you're trying to play now. Uh, for a little baby company, it's often really hard to figure out how much money uh, or how much value you'll be able to create over what amount of time. There's so much to figure out. There's so many bets and learnings and and, and risks that it's often very hard for a, for a company to say, you know, with five million dollars, I'll create you know twenty million dollars in value. So ultimately, if you're a founder, you're incented to give away as little of the company as possible and create as much value from that. And so when we were doing our modeling, we actually thought that it was somewhere closer to, to, to four of what we needed to create the amount of value needed to raise our A. And we ultimately bumped it up to 5.3. And there's a good bit of advice. You hear that a lot among founders that, you know, raising a bit more than you think is, is prudent. And uh, any, anyone who's managed a budget knows how that can go. Uh, so we ultimately did go up to 5.3. But taking more would have meant that we were paying kind of a premium where we could get that million dollars, maybe in a year's time, we'd be giving away a quarter point or a half a point of the company for that million, where we might be giving away, you know, one or one and a half percent of the company now. So it's all about kind of creating as much value with as little money as possible. Uh, and it's easy to get lost in kind of the, the big rounds and the big numbers. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, it's pretty simple math. And correct me if I'm wrong. And this is question as much of as a statement, you know, so to, to reiterate what you, the round you're talking about are seed rounds. And so traditionally, what that means is that the majority of work that you have to do is is just making the product, <laughs> right? But in the space you're in, there is a point in time where you've made the product and you've shown the traction. So what you have becomes more valuable. And so it might be that the next round, which is maybe a series A, a significant portion of that capital would be spent on something else like marketing or sales teams and and that kind of thing. And you're growing beyond just the product development at that point. Is that how you're thinking about this? Or am I wrong? <laughs> so it's it's funny you ask funny you ask. it's really changed the the names, the the mm-hmm. round size, what they mean has changed, you know, more in the last two years than ever before. And I would say that particularly in fintech, because fintech has kind of a number of uh, unique challenges. Um, So I would say that that $1 million round that we raised in May, that was really about building a very basic product, Mm -hmm. um, you know, a very truly minimally viable, acceptable product. And then the seed round in fintechs is often about getting to product market fit mm-hmm. or, or just demonstrating you can reach your end consumer or target user. In fintech, it's often not quite as much tied to a certain amount of revenue at that stage. It's often about just demonstrating that you can get to that user. Right. And that's because in financial technology, the cost to acquire is often quite high. And so for a company that only has raised, say, you know, a five million dollar pre-seed, because the gravity, because you know, it, it often costs hundreds, sometimes thousands of dollars, depending upon the market, to acquire a specific user. The math is such that you're just not going to have that many users, and you're not going to be able to get to a certain amount of revenue. And so, often in fintechs, 
kind of 1 million gets you that uh, initial, that pre-seed gets you that uh, initial product. The seed is about demonstrating that you can scalably get to that end user. And then the series A is really about, you know, blowing that out and starting to exploit that marketing and acquisition machine that you've you've been building to start creating revenue. Mm -hmm. That's a little bit industry specific. Yeah. Other industries will have similar or different terms. And depending upon what sort of branding a firm might want for the round, you also might hear, you know, a hundred million dollar pre-seed. You hear those things as well. It's a it's a crazy time to build in the company. Right. Right. So you mentioned Chris Toomey, who's the CTO of Sagewell, and he was previously at ThoughtBot. As a prior CTO, what were some of the things you looked at in terms of finding Chris and deciding he was the right one to join your team as CTO? I imagine your standards were pretty high. Yeah, and and Chris met them quite happily. As a CTO transitioning to CEO, I think you have to understand your strengths and weaknesses as a CTO, as well as kind of the the learning curve that you might have stepping into your new role as, as CEO. And I would say that uh, one of the fortunate things is that Jeff, my, my co-founder and COO, uh, we actually have a pretty unique you know, set of skills that can span a lot of different domains. And so I would say that looking at Jeff, Chris, and myself, we really had to make sure we had our bases covered to build the financial and technology product we needed. I would encourage folks building a company early on to, to really think about your strengths and weaknesses, your founding team strengths and weaknesses. And as I was getting to know Chris, kind of an initial handshake agreement starting to build and, and prototype various solutions, I think that I was particularly impressed and looking for someone who was willing to have a, a, a deeply experimental and MVP mindset while managing the risks of working with a vulnerable population. And so over the course of kind of December through March or April, in dealing with and spinning up a couple different prototypes uh, with you know radically different uh, product strategies and, and end products, I was able to see how Chris was able to be mature and shrewd about where he could cut corners, where he couldn't cut corners, and then execute accordingly. It's funny, Chris and I were talking at our one-on-one a week or two ago. As a CTO, I know what's a little more of what's possible. I know if I come in and say, you know, I I want the Taj Mahal, I I know, you know, you'll get walked back down. Chris and I, over the past year, you know, I often come to Chris having already teared down my Taj Mahal. And I'm like, well, Chris, what I really need is this one little specific problem. And Chris and I actually set a goal between us uh, that I actually kind of come to him asking for the Taj Mahal next time. Um, or not the next time, but but sometime in the yeah. next year, because I think one of the things I've had to check or do in CEO is is let Chris do CTO's job and not internalize all the time kind of his voice and concerns, but actually put forth a vision and not be afraid of, about kind of the fact that it isn't something that we can get to market in a week or that we can't you know ship in three or four weeks time, which is it's an interesting um, uh, contract that I think we've developed in an, an interesting growth area. I'm it's my job to to throw out bigger ideas, not not to not to be the one who who tears them down all the time, which is which is fun, and I enjoy doing that with Chris. Yeah, that that's an interesting perspective, and and I often even working with clients and consulting want that because if you're only getting the the small pieces all the time, you can not be privy to the big picture of what we're aiming for, and that will often 
lead you to maybe not taking everything into account, either that's on the roadmap or down the road or realizing, oh, you know, you're disappointed now, but if but that's because I didn't know that you wanted to do this. If I had known that we could have done this in a different way or something like that. And so getting a sense of that big picture is often important. Yeah. And it's a fun, uh, I'd say, yeah, in growing with Chris and figuring out that, that he's the right person for the role as a CTO turned CEO means, you know, kicking off the, the ladder and, and actually just stepping into my role and, and, and letting mm-hmm. him do his, which has been a, it's been a, a fun contract to establish. So did you work with Chris as a contractor before committing to him as CTO? Yeah, we were in a consulting relationship kind of I think Chris was politely underbilling, and uh, and the the pretext is always that this was uh, something that we were we were really aiming to build a company together, mm-hmm. uh, assuming everything worked out for, across Chris, Jeff, and I. And so he, he yeah he did he did start in that capacity, and then uh, I'm trying to remember the exact timelines, but it was sometimes the paperwork is well after yeah. the the actual agreement. Whenever you're creating these companies, but in a few months' time, definitely by July and probably by May, we were kind of you know building the company and and. Uh, off to the races. Now, is that a path that you would recommend to other founding teams looking for a CTO is to not commit early to, you know, really make sure that you work well with someone, maybe through a contracting relationship first? Yeah, I I think like, ultimately, if you're going to be going on a journey, you know, a decade long journey, a lifetime long journey, through highs and lows, I think the best way for everyone to know what they're getting themselves into the the excitement and the the reward and the the aches and the pains and the you know sleepy Sam in the in the morning is by working together. And I don't think there's a shortcut. In this case, it depends a lot on the situation. It depends if if folks are in a position where they can not take pay. It depends on whether you know nights and weekends are free or they have flexibility in their in their other roles. But generally speaking, I think that you know ultimately you're trusting and you're founding team is is going to be taking so many risks together that you you want to go in as eyes wide open possible and have removed as much you know founding team risk disagreements misaligned working styles misaligned you know visions or preferences uh, as possible my coach uh, used to say that that's the number one reason why why companies uh, at the seed stage fail is is management teams and founding teams and so as you're thinking about building your company, and, and I can't emphasize this enough, you know, mitigating and removing founding team risk, however possible, it, with consulting being one of them, and you know, navigating a tough conversation or two being another, is absolutely core to removing as much risk as possible for your startup. That's great advice, and I, uh, you know, just like you and Jeff had time of working together before you actually started a company together. I think it's great advice to try to find ways to do that with with other early members of the team too, because uh, it's a big commitment, right? And you want to make sure that you get it right. Exactly. Well, you've reached sort of the the pinnacle uh, of it, having you know now someone on your team that used to work at Thoughtbot. I think I'd be remiss if I didn't point out that that we have another podcast at Thoughtbot. It's called The Bike Shed, and Chris started as a host on that show while he was at ThoughtBot and he continues that to this day along with Steph Fakari, who's a team lead at ThoughtBot. And so if people are interested in hearing about Chris's work now at SageWell and following along with the team and um, and the work that he's doing there, as well as the work we do at ThoughtBot, 
people can check that out at uh, bikeshed.fm. Sejal is not a client of ThoughtBot, right? Um, but you've worked with ThoughtBot before as a client twice, right? Yeah, exactly. Both at my first company, uh, Freebird, which was sold to Capital One, and um, at PathCheck, the nonprofit I worked at. Mm-hmm. So you specifically, I assume, then made an effort to recruit from ThoughtBot when you started Sagewell. <laughs> I would say I know and I, I know and love the way that ThoughtBot approaches building software, and I know and love the people that I've worked with from ThoughtBot. And I would say that it was as much a feature of kind of being in the same communities as it was kind of specifying a specific, yeah. uh, you know, group. Um, no, but I, it, I'm just kidding. I didn't, a great culture. I didn't actually think that that was the case, but, but I can guess a lot of the benefits of working with someone who's worked at ThoughtBot before because of the a level of experience and the, the level of skill and communication and everything that people at ThoughtBot have. But I'm curious, what if I turn that around? Like, is there a downside to hiring someone who worked at ThoughtBot previously to your team? Yeah. I, I, so one of the things that I love about, particularly early on, we have out, a hire that we just made recently. She worked at a senior living facility for four or five years and then worked at Wells Fargo for four or five years. Mm-hmm. And before we had a bunch of fears and this new employee listed five or six totally different fears than we ever would have thought of. And so now we have way more fears. And part of that can be unnerving. uh, And part of that can be challenging. And, you know, I would say that one of the challenges of working with a team that builds software in such a clear culture is that you might not get all the fears. Mm. You know, you might not get certain sorts of diverse perspectives or headaches because of of a particular way that product and, and engineering are conceived. And so you know, one risk, it's kind of the uh, unknown, unknown sort of situation, but mm. it's real in startups, um, which is, I think that making sure you have diverse perspectives across the domains where you need to be deeply an expert for folks who are very similar to you is 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 a major risk. That's great. Well, Sam, thanks for stopping by and sharing with us. I really wish you and Sagewell and the entire team uh, all the best. Awesome. It was a wonderful talking. And if folks want to find out more about Sagewell Financial or follow along with you or get in touch with you, where are all the best places for them to do that? Sagewellfinancial.com is our email. And if you or you or your parents are interested in uh, what we're building uh, as a customer or member, uh, you can sign up there. Um, if you'd like to reach me, I'm mostly on Twitter following cute animals and occasionally the, a good tech post at Theorem of Omega. And if you'd like to contact our company, you can just go to slash press and fill out the form there. Awesome. And you can subscribe to the show and find notes for this episode along with a transcript of this episode and all past episodes uh, this season at giantrobots.fm. If you have questions or comments, email us at host at giantrobots.fm. And you can find me on Twitter at cpytel. This podcast is brought to you by ThoughtBot and produced and edited by Mandy Moore. Thanks for listening and see you next time. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. ThoughtBot is your expert design and development partner. Let's make your product and team a success.